Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. We're going backwards. Acts chapter 1. Nobody laughed at that. That's all right. Uh, Acts chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses out of Acts this morning, uh, things that we've uh, already looked at, but we're going to focus in on a couple things that we have skipped over. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 4 and 5, and then out of chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 4 and verses 16 to 18. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray for your quickening spirit to come, to fill us, to enliven us, to uh, give life to our dead hearts and minds, uh, to enable us to receive your word. Uh, we pray that you would teach us by your word, that you would grow us and uh, transform us to the image of your Son. Uh, Father, we confess that we can't understand your word aright, much less apply it to our lives, much less uh, be transformed in our own strength. We Look to you, Father, to do those things in us by your grace and by the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1, uh, we're going to read verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I need the Holy Spirit. I don't always understand the Holy Spirit, but I'm sure that I need Him. He is the Spirit of holiness and the Spirit of wisdom. He is the Spirit of power and love and self-control. He is the Spirit who brings gifts for ministry. He is the Spirit who brings fruit to our lives and conforms us to the image of Jesus. The Spirit is the one who illuminates our minds and softens our hearts. He is the one who is the spirit of sonship, who enables us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. I don't always understand the spirit or the work of the spirit, but I do know that I need him desperately. Now, if you are confused about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you are definitely not alone. Uh, if you have been in the church for any length of time, uh, you know that there are a wide array of views on the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's not as if these things are perfectly clear in Scripture, but uh, people just refuse to see it. There are some things in Scripture, according to Scripture, that are hard to understand. I keep reading and reading and rereading, and uh, there are still many things about the work and person of the Spirit that I just, I just don't get. And I want to confess that from the start, uh, confess that the limitations, uh, my own limitations at this point. Uh, now, I often think you really shouldn't have to confess your humanity, but uh, that's what I'm doing, <laughs> I guess. Um, and almost everything I say this morning is going to be controversial for somebody. Uh, so I ask for your patience as we walk through these things. And uh, if you would like to talk about these things afterwards, great, let me know. Uh, we can set up a time to, to go out and get a cup of coffee and sit down and talk about the Holy Spirit. I would love that. Uh, just so you know, I, there, there were lots of people that I read and will sort of draw from as I work through this, but uh, one of those in particular is uh, a book by a guy named John Stott, the book Baptism in Fullness. Uh, and uh, if you've read Stott and what I say sounds familiar, uh, then I probably did a good job. Um, <laughs> now, if, I, if you've read Stott and it sounds familiar, that's, that's why. It's because I'm drawing on a lot of what Stott said in that book. So, uh, this morning we're going to talk about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's so much that could be said, but our conversation... Uh, this morning, you'll, you'll be happy to know, is going to be constrained uh, by two things. One, by our time together, and two, by our text. Uh, we're going to be looking at what Scripture has to say. Uh, and, uh, of course, we always want our thoughts to be constrained by Scripture. This morning, we're going to be looking uh, at really two chapters in Acts, Acts chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we've been looking at Acts, and specifically Pentecost, for the past three weeks uh, you may remember, we've looked at the sights and the sounds of Pentecost, the mighty wind and the tongues of fire. Uh, we've looked at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost as he preached by the power of the Spirit from the Old Testament, bearing witness to Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. Uh, we've looked at the response of those who heard, uh, seeing the weight of the situation, they were cut to the heart. So they turned from their old way of thinking and their old way of living, and they turned to Jesus to be rescued. And that said, uh, there are two phrases in Acts 1 and 2 uh, that we've kind of skimmed over. Uh, and uh, because those two phrases are often misunderstood, I thought it would be helpful uh, if I took some time to try to understand and explain them. And so we're going to be focusing really on two phrases in Acts 1 and 2, just two phrases. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5 uh, where Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now, baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 4, where we're told that all the disciples on the day of Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit. What do those phrases mean? Well, here's what we're going to see uh, in, in, in total. Uh, we're going to see that the Spirit has been poured out so that we can be filled up in order to speak forth the message of God's grace in Christ. That is, the Spirit has been poured out as the Spirit of the new age 
so that we can be filled up with his power, made perfect in our weakness, in order to speak forth the message of God's grace in Christ as a prophetic people who are anointed by King Jesus. So our outline, you can see it in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along, the back of your bulletin, uh, three points, uh, poured out the baptism of the Spirit, filled up the fullness of the Spirit, and speaking forth the prophethood of all believers. So first we'll talk about poured out, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there are four things that I want us to note about this. The first is, as we think about this phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism of the Spirit was a promised experience. It was a promised experience. What do I mean by that? Well, um, you know, we live in a world, uh, you may have noticed, that is fundamentally broken. Uh, frustration and futility and fruitlessness abound. We often feel forsaken and unloved and unwanted and abandoned. We experience sadness instead of joy and despair instead of hope. And all of those things were experienced by God's people under the Old Testament. All of those things were experienced at different points in time by Israel. God saw their trouble. God knew their pain. God uh, promised to bring it to an end. And while the phrase, the baptism of the Spirit, is a distinctly New Testament phrase, it, it is a direct fulfillment of certain Old Testament promises. So, so listen to these promises from the Old Testament. In Isaiah, Isaiah 32, verses 14 to 18, Isaiah says this, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys and pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteous abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Did you notice in, that, in those verses in Isaiah, what was the turning point? The turning point from forsaken to fruitful. The turning point uh, would be when the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Or again, Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. Again, the turning point for Israel would be God pouring out his spirit. Ezekiel 39, Therefore thus is the Lord God. Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will not hide my face any more from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And of course, Joel 2.28, which we heard earlier, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God repeatedly, throughout the Old Testament, and those are just 
examples, God repeatedly promises to restore Israel. He repeatedly promises to give them new life. And what does that restoration look like? What is the turning point? It is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who comes to make all things new. Well, when would that be fulfilled? How how do the promises of God to Israel come about? Well, John the Baptist introduces Jesus as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself says to his disciples that he would baptize them with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then Pentecost comes. And Peter says this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel when God promised to pour out his Spirit. See, Jesus baptizing the church with the Spirit is when he pours out the Spirit on the church. Jesus is the one who brings about this promised reality by pouring out the Spirit, bringing about the restoration that was promised by the prophets. By pouring out the Spirit, Jesus has begun the renewal of all things. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the first fruits of the new creation. It's not the full harvest, but it is the beginning. It's a foretaste, an appetizer of things to come. Like water to the thirsty ground, according to Isaiah, so is the Holy Spirit to our souls. He comes to renew and refresh. So baptism with the Spirit is this long-awaited promise of renewal. Long-awaited promise of renewal. And it comes when Jesus pours out the Spirit. Also, second, baptism with the Spirit is not just a promised experience, it's a universal experience. Uh, You know, some uh, Christians believe that the baptism of the Spirit is a reality for only some of God's people. You may have heard this kind of teaching. They believe in in a kind of two-phase Christianity, right? That first there's conversion, and then later on down the road at some point, uh, there's the baptism in the Spirit. And this inevitably leads to a kind of two-tier understanding of Christianity, right? There are sort of mere Christians who believe in Jesus, and then there are Spirit-baptized Christians, But baptism with the Spirit here in Acts is not particular to some of God's people, but it's common to all of them. This is made very plain in Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. When Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and quoting Joel, he says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Upon whom, upon whom does Jesus pour out his spirit, according to Joel and Peter? Jesus pours out his spirit on all flesh. Now, uh, that, that could be taken to another extreme. I was actually in an Assemblies of God church one time, and uh, the pastor took it in a way I, I really didn't expect. He said, uh, what that means is God has poured out his spirit on everybody indiscriminately, meaning Christians and non-Christians, Muslims and Hindus, right, Buddhists, it doesn't matter. God has spirit, poured out his spirit on everyone, all flesh, right? All means all, except when it doesn't. Uh, all here 
is qualified. In fact, the word all is most often qualified by its context. All here is qualified. God promises to pour out his spirit on your sons and your daughters, your young men and your old men, my male and female servants. God is promising to pour out his spirit on his people. And all different kinds of people, that's true, right? That's the point of the all flesh. All different kinds of people, men and women, young and old, high status and low, but God's people. You see this again at the end of the sermon in, in verse 38, which is a different way of putting the qualification. Verse 38, we're told, Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, the gift of the, the Spirit is for those who repent. It's not for all indiscriminately, it is for all flesh, meaning all different kinds of people, who repent and turn to Jesus. And so the gift of the Spirit is universal, meaning he is given to all of God's people, all who repent and turn to Jesus to be rescued. When we repent and turn to Jesus in this way, we are taken up by Jesus in this renewal of all things. Uh, you may remember the verse in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Why is that? Because we are indwelt by the Spirit, the first fruits of the new creation. So the baptism of the Spirit is, is not only this promised experience, this long hoped for experience uh, ever since the days of the prophets, it's also a universal experience for all of God's people indiscriminately. Third, the baptism of the Spirit is also in the, the initial experience of the Christian life. Uh, there, there are some who believe, as we mentioned, that, that, that there is a two-phase nature to Christianity, right? That first there's conversion, and then second there's baptism in the Spirit. Well, is that the case? Are there these two steps that we are to go through? Well, Acts 1-5, right, talks about uh, this experience of the Spirit as a baptism. And there are, there are four elements to every baptism, there's uh, the baptizer, uh, the baptizee, or the one baptized, I guess. Uh, there's the element with which one is baptized, and then there is the reality into which one is baptized. Okay? So that the one who baptizes, the one who is baptized, the element with which they baptize, and the reality into which they are baptized. So, for example, John the Baptist, right? He baptizes Israel, or Israelites who come to him, with water... It's the element into or for repentance. They're baptized with water into repentance. Well, what is the reality? What is the reality into which baptism with the Spirit brings us? That's the question, right? Okay, so if baptism brings you into something, what is it that baptism with the Spirit brings us into? Uh, Galatians 3.27 says we were baptized into Christ. Uh, Romans 6, 3 says we were baptized into Christ and into his death. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For with one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Uh, notice the emphasis there in 1 Corinthians 12, as on the day of Pentecost and, and, and in Joel's prophecy, that this is a universal blessing, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Uh, maybe that's even more universal than Joel realized at the time. But, but notice also that the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, brings us into the body of Christ. 
The point of 1 Corinthians 12 there, if we, if we were to look at that whole passage, the point there is to establish the common experience of all of God's people, our oneness in the body. And if only some Christians had this spirit baptism, Paul's argument would actually fall flat. It would actually be the opposite of what he's trying to say. But Paul can easily insist there in 1 Corinthians 12 that we all, qualified in the context as all believers, uh, all who make up the body of Christ, how did they get there? They were all baptized into the body by the Spirit. As Jesus uh, at one point talks about uh, dipping bread into a dish or baptizing, that's the word used, bread into a dish, so baptism brings us into the church, into the church. In fact, uh, we could actually say, if, if we haven't been baptized into the body, then, then you're not a part of the body. Uh, Romans 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So, so Spirit baptism is what takes place at conversion. That's, that's a different way of talking about conversion. When you are joined to Jesus, when you're brought by Jesus into his body, and if you have been joined to Jesus by faith, in other words, you have been baptized by the Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because as Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So our confession of faith proves that Jesus has baptized us with his Spirit. Now, some people still insist, no, no, uh, baptism with the Spirit is not conversion. They're two separate realities, but it's a second blessing. And they say in Acts 2, right, look at the 120 people on the day of Pentecost. Uh, they, they were disciples before the day of Pentecost, before they were baptized with the Spirit. And that's true, right? They were disciples before they were baptized with the Spirit. But the problem with that line of thinking is it doesn't take into account the uniqueness of their experience. Think about it. These were people who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw his death and resurrection. Pentecost, right, the baptism, the pouring out of the Spirit, was a sign of Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father. He received the gift of the Spirit, Peter says in Acts 2.33, and he poured him out upon his church. Of course they weren't baptized when they first became disciples, right? Jesus had not yet been raised and ascended. Jesus had not yet received the Spirit from the right hand of the Father so that he could pour him out. They couldn't possibly have received the baptism of the Spirit before that. Of course, neither did they believe in the cross and the resurrection. Right? Think about the disciples all throughout the Gospels. They have no clue, right? They, didn't, they were disciples, but they didn't believe in the cross and the resurrection. But we wouldn't say that we become disciples of Jesus first and then only later believe in the cross and resurrection, right? That might have been true for them in their unique situation. That certainly is not true for us today. The New Testament letters help us out here because they are written to churches whose situation is at least more like ours than the situation in Acts 2. Uh, though even there, right, we must be aware of some differences. But Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 apply. With one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. The spirit brings us into the body of Christ, unites us to Jesus and his people. All right, one last thing about this baptism before we move on to talking about filling. 
And that is, uh, I want to talk about the, the, the symbol of this experience for a moment. Um, baptism with water uh, symbolizes baptism with the Spirit. So Acts 1.5, again, Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And uh, if you have ever talked with me about sort of the symbolism of baptism and so the mode of baptism, uh, you know that I've often said, look, I'm happy to sprinkle, pour, dunk, whatever. As long as you get wet, right, I will baptize you. Um, That being said, uh, the symbolism in Acts is actually pretty clear. Uh, Baptism with the Spirit in Acts happens very consistently as the Spirit is poured out and falls on the people. That's the imagery again and again. Uh, Never is there language of the individual uh, being sort of immersed in the Spirit or dunked under the Spirit. Uh, The imagery is always of the Spirit falling upon the people. the language of, of being poured out, that, that phrase in Scripture is used of wine being spilled and uh, blood being shed and coins being dumped, right? Uh, Jesus pours out or spills or sheds or dumps his spirit upon us. Um, water baptism symbolizes this. And uh, in light of the fact uh, that, that the result of baptism, as we'll see in a moment, is filling uh, again, the symbol of pouring makes the most sense, right? How do, how do you fill a cup? By pouring water into it. Um, so the symbolism of baptism, actually, in the book of Acts, is, is really most faithful to the reality of, of spirit baptism when water is poured out upon the individual. And so that's why some churches use pouring uh, as their main mode of baptism. Uh, Uh, Some people insist that the word baptism actually always means immersion. That's actually not the case. Uh, In fact, the the Jews had certain ritual hand washings in Greek, they called baptisms, uh, in which water was poured over the hands three times on the left hand, three times on the right hand, and that ritual pouring was called a baptism, a washing. Um, And so uh, in spirit baptism, what happens? Jesus pours out his spirit on his people thus bringing them into his body, the church. So Jesus instituted the renewal or began the renewal of all things at the day of Pentecost when he pours out the Spirit. And he brings us into that renewal at our conversion, which, is, which entrance into that renewal is symbolized through baptism. All right. That's enough controversy about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now we'll move on to the filling of the Spirit. Filled up the fullness of the Spirit. Uh, Let let me mention again uh, that uh, there is this strong Old Testament expectation about the fullness of the Spirit. So Moses had a longing in Numbers 11. Emily read it earlier for us. He longed for all of God's people to be filled with the Spirit. He longed for all of God's people to prophesy. And what Moses wished for, Joel then promised in Joel chapter 2. And what Joel promised came about on the day of Pentecost. The baptism of the Spirit results in the church being filled with the Spirit. Acts 2, 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. 
Jesus pours out the Spirit, and the result is the people are filled with the Spirit. Now, this filling, this idea of being filled with the Spirit, is not the, is not the exception. Uh, it, it is not something unique or abnormal in the church. Being full of the Spirit is actually a requirement for deacons in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, Barnabas is said to be full of the Spirit and faith in Acts 11. As the gospel goes forth, even in the midst of persecution, the disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit in Acts 13. And so this is clearly meant to be the norm for God's people. In fact, not only is it not an exception, but it is to be filled with the Spirit is actually an exhortation. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an exhortation, be filled with the Spirit. Unlike the, the baptism of the Spirit, which is this initial work of Jesus bringing us into his church, and so a work which happens once for each believer, right? You're brought into the church. The filling of the Spirit happens continuously. Uh, in fact, one way of thinking about this distinction between what I'm saying and, and sort of the Pentecostal or the charismatic view is that, is that Pentecostals and charismatics and others see the necessity for a second work of God, right? Post-conversion, which they call baptism in the Spirit. The problem is not so much that we don't need a second work of God, uh, but that we need a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a 27th and a 38th and a 479th, right? We need a continual work of the Holy Spirit, in our hearts and in our lives. We must continually seek the Spirit and His work within us. Why? Right? Why is the filling, the being filled with the Spirit so important? Well, there are a couple things that we could say about that. Uh, so the, first, the, the purpose of filling is, is to empower us. Um, you see this repeatedly in the Old Testament. Right? Read through the Old Testament. And uh, God gave His Spirit to Moses to enable him to lead. God gave his spirit to Bezalel to enable him to build the temple. God uh, sent his spirit on the judges to fight for Israel again and again and again. God pours out his spirit on his people, raises up a judge so that he can defend Israel. Uh, John the Baptist is filled with the spirit even from the womb to complete his ministry. Uh, Elizabeth, his mother, is filled with the spirit and then blesses Mary and Jesus in her womb. Uh, Zechariah, his father, is filled with the Spirit, begins to prophesy after John's birth. Peter is filled with the Spirit before speaking uh, before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4. In the end of that chapter, when the church prays, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. See, the purpose of the filling of the Spirit is, is empowerment for ministry. And the difference between the Old Testament and today is that today, what we're told is all of God's people are given the Spirit for ministry. Or, you know, to say that differently in maybe a much uh, more normal way to your ears, uh, every believer is given spiritual gifts for ministry in the church. That's all, that's all that we're saying. Right? But, but the way Luke talks about that in the book of Acts is being filled with the Spirit. It's the same reality, the gifts of the Spirit uh, are talking about the same thing as the fullness of the Spirit. So the filling with the Spirit is this expectation of the prophets. It's not the exception, but the norm. It's a command for God's people uh, to equip them for ministry. 
for what purpose? What's the end result? What's the, what's the goal? Is for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church. So uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Right? That's why we're given gifts for ministry. That's why, the Holy, that's why we're given the Holy Spirit to build up the church. Christ has given his Spirit to the church that we might build one another up in love, as uh, Bryce prayed about earlier, speaking to one another in love. So whatever spiritual gifts there may be, they are to be used to this end, the edification of the church, the building up of the church. That's the goal of spiritual gifts. How do we know when someone is filled with the Spirit, right? What, what's, what's sort of the evidence of this fullness of the Spirit? Well, the evidence is actually the, the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is not the miraculous, right? Uh, sometimes we People think that, right, that uh, being filled with the Spirit means doing something miraculous, doing something supernatural. Uh, and while maybe patience in my heart is a supernatural act, that's not normally what people mean. Uh, but miraculous gifts are not a necessary sign of the Spirit's presence. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, "'will enter the kingdom of heaven.'" but the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, whatever uh, the Spirit might empower us to do, the real sign of the Spirit's presence is not the miraculous but the moral. Uh, when, when, the, when Paul describes being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, he describes things like fellowship and worship and thanksgiving and submission. Right? That's the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. The Corinthians clearly had an abundance of gifts, read through 1 Corinthians, uh, but what they really needed, they most lacked, which was love. That was the sign of the Spirit, a true sign of the Spirit's presence in their midst. One might be baptized with the Spirit, gifted by the Spirit, and yet not filled with the Spirit because of, we grieve the Spirit, the Scripture says. And so lacking what is most necessary, the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives. So this filling with the Spirit, it's, it's the expectation of the prophets. It's not the exception, but the norm, right? the Spirit's work in the life of God's people. It's even an exhortation, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, it's uh, another passive imperative, which we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Be filled with the Spirit. Uh, it's something that has to be done to you. The Spirit must fill you. Um, uh, the purpose of this is to equip for ministry and for edification, to build one another up, right? To speak the truth in love, to show grace to one another. Um, and the presence of the Spirit is evidenced in the fruit of the Spirit, right? Not in the miraculous, but in the moral, in, in living a life pleasing to God, a life which, by the way, you can't live in your own strength. So if you're living it, it's only because the Holy Spirit is at work within you. All right, this brings us then to our final point, 
speaking forth the, the prophethood of all believers. Um, now, now, Joel and Peter on the day of Pentecost both tell us that Jesus pours out the Spirit so that we will prophesy. Now, to be honest, we have kind of a skewed view of prophecy, and uh, we think of it only as foretelling things that are going to happen. Uh, but while prophecy sometimes in the Old Testament did consist of telling of things that were yet to come, prophecy always consisted, no matter what, in proclaiming the mighty works of God. And, and uh, that, by the way, is exactly what the 120 were doing on the day of Pentecost. This is what the crowd says in chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, we hear them telling in our own languages, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. You see, what, what the Spirit empowers us to do, according to Acts, is, is to speak about Jesus, to show and tell Jesus to proclaim God's mighty works to those around us, to show the love of Jesus specifically in our care for one another. We'll see that in the next section of Acts, the end of Acts 2, and to tell of his grace to a lost and dying world. And so we speak and we serve empowered by the Spirit. We do that not because we, we are learned or particularly talented. Uh, we may be those things or we may not be, but either way we are we are impotent to affect change in the hearts and lives of those around us in our own strength. And so we seek the Spirit's power in the midst of our weakness and impotence. So the question of the Spirit's filling is a question of the Spirit's power at work in our weakness to glorify Christ. Where are you weak? Where are you powerless? Pray for the Spirit to work through you right there, to show His power in your weakness. The Spirit is at work to empower God's people to speak and serve in Jesus' name, right? To show and tell Jesus' grace to the world. That's why, the term, uh, why I use the term prophethood of all believers. Uh, you may have heard the term priesthood of all believers, right? We kind of throw that around in in some circles. And that means that all of us have access to the Father uh, through the Son, right? The priesthood of all believers. Each of us have direct access to the Father through the Son. The, the, the phrase prophethood of all believers means then that all of us are empowered by the Spirit to show and tell the mighty works of God. We may do that in different ways, right? Uh, there's a variety of gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, uh, but we're all empowered in some way uh, to represent Jesus in the world. So we're all priests with access to God's throne of grace through prayer. We are all prophets called to show and tell what God has done in Jesus. Now, I have one last question I want to ask. And um, if Jesus has poured out his spirit so that we uh, would be filled with his spirit in order to show and tell the message of his grace... If we believe in this thing, the prophethood of all believers who are called to speak forth of God's mighty deeds, uh, what does that mean for the other terms in verse 17? Right? I've only talked about one of them, prophesy. But there are others. Uh, we've talked about prophesying. What about seeing visions and dreaming dreams? What do you do with those phrases? Uh, does God still lead in those ways? Does God still give people dreams and visions? Um, well, on the one hand, this is a huge question, which we don't have 
whole lot of time to answer, so I'm just going to close up and be done and leave it with you. No. <laughs> Dodge that one, right? No. Uh, no, it is a big question that we can only touch on briefly, so I'm probably going to insult everybody in one way or another. But uh, second thing we should say, anything that we can say about this, anything that we can say about the miraculous works of God uh, is not about what God can do, right? I mean, we know that God can do anything he, he wishes. Uh, it's not about what God can do. He can do anything he wants. The question is about what God has said he would do, right? Which is a different kind of question. God can make a purple unicorn if he likes, but I wouldn't hold your breath. Uh, third thing we can say, and this is clear even from the book of Acts, that uh, visions and dreams were not everyday occurrences, even for the apostolic church. Right? 1 Corinthians 12 tells us not everyone has every gift. So even, even within the, the, the day of the, the early church, not everyone has every gift. Not everyone uh, has the same gifts. There have been times in history when God has spoken more directly to his people, right? So, for example, uh, God spoke more directly to Moses than he did to anybody else, than any of the other Old Testament prophets. This is what God himself says in Numbers chapter 12, uh, just after the passage that was read earlier. Uh, God says to Aaron and uh, Miriam, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. And so God speaks to different people in different times, in different ways. And uh, truth be told, right, God did not speak to many people in any generation. Right? Even if we add up all the people in the Bible that God spoke to, it would be a relatively small number. Uh, God did not speak to many people in any generation. And when God did speak, it normally was to explain something that he was about to do. Right? This, is, this is what I'm about to do, people. Right? God says through his prophets, I'm going to bring judgment unless you repent. Or he's explaining what he has just done so that Israel can understand why the judgment came. God's words always went hand in hand with God's actions. And so we have books of the Bible being written around the times of the Exodus to explain what happened in the Exodus, around the times of the exile to explain what happened in the exile, around the time of the return from the exile to explain what was going on then. So God acted and then he explained his actions to his people. You see that pattern again and again and again throughout Scripture. And of course, Hebrews uh, chapter 1 uh, says this, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Right? Jesus came in the last days as the final revelation of the Father. He came to make known the way of salvation by securing the way of salvation through the cross and the resurrection. And then the apostles' job as Jesus' official representatives, right, we've looked at that earlier in Acts, was to proclaim and explain and interpret what Jesus has done. Jesus came and he acted, and the apostles then explained that to the rest of us. And what this means is uh, no further revelation is necessary. Jesus has come as the climax of history. 
God has written down through the apostles everything we need to know for life and godliness. Right? That's what the New Testament says. Uh, everything we need to know about Jesus, about the cross, about the resurrection, and about our hope for the future. Any understanding of, of prophecy or visions or dreams right, that somehow undermines that sufficiency of Scripture, the completeness of Revelation, needs to be rejected. Right? God has spoken in His Son. He's the one we need to listen to. But then we still have this nagging question, right? Does that, does that mean that God never leads in sort of more mysterious ways? Uh, do we just discount any, any stories that we hear or anything that happens? Um, well, on the one hand, I, 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 I more often than not maintain sort of an attitude of skepticism, but, but this is where I come to an end of what I can understand, right? Uh, you know, here's what I know. Revelation is complete and sufficient. It provides everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of Christ. Uh, we're not to spend our days seeking for signs. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Uh, so we're, we're not to sit around just waiting for visions or dreams or omens, right? Uh, we have scripture to guide us. At the same time, uh, that doesn't mean that God can't work through other means. Uh, so, you know, once Deborah and I were going through this really difficult time in life, and uh, months after the fact, a friend heard about it, and she wrote us a letter, and for months, she had been having these nightmares about us. Uh, nothing special as far as nightmares go, but just nightmares about Deborah and I, and she would wake up in the middle of the night and she would pray for us. She had no idea what was going on. Uh, she, she, uh, she, she didn't know what we needed, right? She didn't know what trouble we're in. We didn't talk, I mean, we hadn't talked for probably five years before that, maybe six years before that. But she just started having these nightmares about us and she would wake up in the middle of the night and she would just pray for us. And uh, she just prayed for months when we needed it. What do you do with that? Right? How do you explain that? Uh, I say God is sovereign. Right? God is sovereign. Uh, if he wants to provoke someone to prayer through dreams, amen. He can do as he pleases. I don't, I don't need to explain that away or explain it, period. Uh, I can just trust in the sovereignty of God. Um, this doesn't take away from the sufficiency of Scripture, of course, because God didn't reveal some new doctrine about Jesus in her dreams. Uh, in fact, she didn't learn anything in her dream uh, that a phone call wouldn't have taken care of. Right? She could have called us on the phone and said, how are you doing? And we could have said, actually, life is really hard right now. Um, and phone calls don't take away from the sufficiency of Scripture, at least not last I checked. So, so neither did this dream. Right? She just felt like she needed to pray for us, and she did. Something similar could probably be said of, of reports that maybe you've heard uh, of Muslims in closed countries who have these dreams uh, that telling them to receive a book in the marketplace and lo and behold, the next day, someone offers them a Bible in the marketplace. Because of the dream, they take that book, they take the Bible, they read it, and they're converted. Um, what do you do with that? You know, when you have dozens at least of, of reports like this, uh, Muslims coming to Jesus through reading the Bible, but they accepted the Bible because of the dream. Well, uh, rather than taking away from the sufficiency of Scripture, th those kinds of things, again, actually point people to Scripture. That's what the dreams were doing, pointing them to the Scriptures. Um, to be sure, Scripture, right, is where we must stand. 
We find little to no talk of dreams and visions in the letters of the New Testament. It's just not there. Uh, there Paul talks about one of his visions. Yeah, the book of Revelation, set that one aside, right, which is one long vision. But in the letters to the churches, not a lot of talk about visions and dreams. Um, but we find abundant exhortations to cling to the teaching of God's word. And so we seek the Spirit to empower us. We seek the Spirit to illumine Scripture, to guide us through God's word. And then we pour out our lives to show and to tell of King Jesus to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit using your word uh, that we would humbly submit ourselves to the truths of Scripture. Uh, we pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to show and tell Jesus to the world around us. We confess, Father, that we are impotent and powerless, powerless to love one another, powerless to love the lost, uh, powerless to show grace and mercy Father, we pray that you would work those things in us by your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit, Father, that, that his work in us would be evident to all as we show love and mercy to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.